Today we want to talk about Christmas charity. And the word charity became most famous in the English language by its use in the King James Version of the Bible, and especially in Paul's chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, which says in part, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profits me nothing. And then he goes on to describe the characteristics of charity, and we'll read that in a few minutes. The problem with the word, though, charity, is that it has suffered some disuse as the word love has replaced it in modern translations. And love can and does have so, so many meanings in our world today. So let's read the same verses in the message version. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy and don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Today, as a result of the misuse of the word charity, charity has become a catch-all term to describe nonprofit organizations that help the poor and the needy. And charity, in reality, biblically, is a really good word, a strong, proactive word. Its roots are in the Latin words for affection. And we talked about affection last time. And in the Bible, it's not used to describe an organization, a charity, but rather to describe an action. A charitable act of, or gesture motivated by genuine affection, caring, and love. Charity in the Bible is a charitable act or gesture motivated by genuine affection, caring, and love. Since 1950, the word charity has been personalized by the actions of the missionaries of charity, which began with 12 workers in Calcutta. Today, there are 4,500 workers all over the world continuing the work of Mother Teresa. And what was her work? Well, in her own words, it was to love and care for or extend charity to the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for, throughout society, people that have become a burden to the society and are shunned by everyone. We should all be challenged by Mother Teresa and the missionaries of charity, and we have to admire their willingness to go looking for ways to extend the love of God. They didn't just sit back and wait for the needy to come to them. 
They go out into the streets of the world's largest cities and find those who have been shunned by everyone and bring them in and meet their needs. That's the true heart of biblical charity, now referred to as love. God didn't wait for the human race to come to him for help. He sent forth his Son into the world to seek out and to save that which was lost. Luke 19, verse 10. God's charity, his agape love, was the reason for the first Christmas. And we see this in the most famous biblical verse of all, John 3, 16. For God so loved, we could have actually put the word charity in there, had charity for the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. At that first Christmas, there was a young couple who had been shunned by everyone. A young couple who were engaged, but not married in our terms today. A young girl, age 14, who was pregnant out of wedlock, which in that day was definitely a sin. And they had journeyed for days to get to Bethlehem, although it was a rough trip because Mary's baby was due at any moment. Bethlehem normally was a small village to begin with, and of course it had been swollen by others like Mary and Joseph who had traveled to the village of their forefather David to register for the mandatory Roman census. And there in the streets, filled with all of Joseph's cousins and family members, they wondered where they would find a place for Mary to rest and probably deliver her baby. Luke, the doctor in writing the Gospel of Luke, is precise in his language when he says there was no room for them in the inn, Luke 2, 7. The suggestion is that Bethlehem had only one inn. It was a small village, and this one inn was where travelers might stay the night, and it was full when Mary and Joseph arrived. Perhaps they had looked all over town for a place to stay. Perhaps they pleaded with the innkeeper for something, anything. Perhaps the innkeeper saw Mary's bulging robes, her stooped posture, her hand on her stomach. Whatever the reason, the innkeeper helped the young couple who would soon be parents. He led them to the stable, perhaps the place where guests at the inn kept their animals, and helped arrange a place for Mary to rest. It wasn't much but it was a roof over their heads and draw dry straw under their feet and a manger for the baby, a feeding trough for the animals that would become a manger for the baby should Mary deliver the baby that night. It wasn't much, but the innkeeper did what he could. He showed charity to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan is as good a human illustration of charity as we will ever find. Luke 10, and we're going to read verses 30 to 37. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
that's by the way an outcast to a Jewish person, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The word could be charity. The word could be love. He went to him and bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus goes on to ask, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The one who showed him mercy, they said. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Before the Samaritan, who is a social outcast among the Jews, encountered the man who had been attacked, robbed, and beaten, and left for dead, two other religious people had passed by and done nothing. But the Samaritan crossed the road and extended love and compassion, charity. He bandaged the man and took him to an inn and paid for his room and board while he recovered. He couldn't do everything, but he did what he could, just like the innkeeper. And Jesus concluded the story by saying, And you go and do likewise. Last time together, we chatted about affection, a feeling, a tender feeling towards another, a disposition to feel, to do, or to say. And I commented that love was affection on steroids, and that we are called to be lovingly affectionate at this special time of the year and year-round. And 1 Corinthians goes on to describe this loving affection, to describe this agape, this love of God, the way we are to love. And in part it states, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't re re revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. We are called to be lovingly affectionate at this special time of the year and year-round. And this concept of Christian Christmas charity, seen in the story of the Good Samaritan, seen in the story of Joseph and Mary in the stable, fits right in to this idea of charity being love in action. All around us at Christmas this year will be those less fortunate than we are. And we can pass by on the other side of the road, or we can cross over and do what we can do to make their life and their Christmas more comfortable. Charity, love towards others, is practical affection and caring, based on an active response of Christ to our needs. In other words, we're to do what the Good Samaritan did, who crossed over the road and met a need because he could, and better yet, 
were doing what Jesus did, who crossed over and became one of us to meet our needs. So let's read John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 5, skip a little bit that's about John the Baptist, and then continue in verses 9 to 18. And again, I'm reading it from the message version. It's the story of Christmas. It's the story of Jesus crossing over to have practical affection, to have love towards us. John chapter 1. The Word was first. The Word present to God, God present to the Word. The Word was God, in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through Him. Nothing, not one thing, came into being without Him. What came into existence was life, and the life was light to live by. And the life light blazed out of the darkness, and the darkness couldn't put it out. The life light was the real thing. Every person entering life, he brings into light. He was in the world, the world was there through him, and yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed that he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God's selves. These are the God-begotten, not blood-begotten, not flesh-begotten, not sex-begotten. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. John pointed him out and called, This is the one, the one I told you was coming after me but in fact was ahead of me. He has always been ahead of me, has always had the first word. We all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses, but then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus, the Messiah. No one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse the one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. God, out of his love, crossed over to help us. And I love what says in John chapter 1, this is the one where John the Baptist pointed him out and called, this is the one, this is the one, this is him. Christmas is a good time to reflect on these key verses because they form the foundation of our Christmas celebrations. And yet almost everything we do to celebrate the birth of Jesus does not reflect the true meaning of this world-changing event of the birth of Jesus. One verse in the Bible tells us exactly how to celebrate Christmas and who better than Mary herself to set the example. In Luke 2, verse 19, it says, But Mary kept all of these things and pondered them in her heart. And so for many decades I have spent time each Christmas pondering. Pondering the death, 
depth of love, pondering the depth of God's charity, pondering the depth of his compassion that he has for us. Because love that is seriously expressed in those words from John chapter 1. Like Mary, I stop often during the Christmas season to ponder these things. Pondering is a word worth pondering. According to the dictionary, it means to weigh in the mind, to think about, and to reflect on. And this describes a biblical pattern for life. The psalmist wrote in various psalms, and I'm stringing them all together, Reflect in your heart and be still. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. I reflect on the work of your hands. The book of Ecclesiastes states, Sober reflection is good for the heart. It's Ecclesiastes 7 verse 3. So there are lots of ways to practice the art of personal reflection during the holidays. And in fact, for year round for that matter. I personally find that late in the evening, when the motion and commotion of the day is done, when I can sit in a comfortable chair, blanket over my knees, and my Bible with me along with a cup of hot chocolate, and just one light on over my shoulder so I won't be distracted by everything else in the room. For me, that is a time to let the world go, drop the cares and the hassles of the day, and simply reflect and ponder. And at this time of the year, I ponder on the words and actions of the Christmas story and the many people involved in this amazing intervention of God into human history. When God crossed over and saw us crossed over because we were wounded and dying. And specifically this year, I'm pondering the words that we just read from John chapter 1 in the message version. We got the basics from Moses. And then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus. It takes discipline and effort to manage reflection, pondering, because everything at Christmas seems to fight against it. Someone recently wrote, Christmas has really become a hopeless muddle of confusion. The humility and the poverty of the stable and are somehow confused with the wealth and the indulgence and the selfishness of gift-giving. The quietness of Bethlehem is mingled with the din of shopping malls and highway traffic. The soberness of the Incarnation is somehow mixed with the drunkenness of this season. This paradox of Christmas is heard in the sounds of today. The honking of horns, the jingling of salvation bells, salvation army bells, the laughing of children, the strains of the car carolers, the ho-ho-ho of mall Santas, and Christmas shoppers being rude and pushy. It's all part of the frenzy of the season. Yet, as far as I'm concerned, the best Christmas moments are the quiet ones. And the best reflection of the Christmas story takes place in the mirror of our own hearts. So I pray that this Christmas you will find a quiet place to be still in the presence of Jesus and allow him opportunity to speak personally to you as you celebrate his birth in Bethlehem so many centuries ago. 
Merry Christmas to you and to your family.